0: This series takes its title from two works, uh, Derrida's Limited Incorporated and John Crow Ransom's Criticism Incorporated, the latter of which is also alluded to by Guillory's title, Professing Criticism. And in Ransom Essay, there's two things I noted, reading it and then reading your book simultaneously. I'm speaking with Bruce Robbins, who you may remember negotiating with the gun-toting businessman during our High Theory episode a few weeks ago. He's the Old Dominion Foundation Professor of the Humanities at Columbia, and I just alluded to his most recent book, Politics and Criticism, which we'll be discussing in greater detail next week. But for the question that I'm about to ask, I was also thinking about two of his earlier works, Upward Mobility in the Common Good and The Beneficiary. In both, Robbins considers prevailing political economic structures from various periods of Anglo-American cultural history and the epistemologies and moral imperatives which rationalize them. This logic of corporation, which I know is something that you have a history of thinking about, and I was curious about that notion of the corporation being the model for professionalized criticism, the structure for professionalized criticism. I would be very curious to know what you think
1: about that. John Guillory, when he talks about Bourdieu, talks about the word corporate, not necessarily in the ordinary American sense of corporate, but there's a kind of defending of corporateness or something like that, Mm -hmm. that Guillory finds attractive, I think, in Bourdieu which probably, although it's a different vocabulary, wouldn't be all that different from what I'm trying to get out of professionalism. Professionalism, I think, is not a term that would be used in France as much as it would be used here. I remember trying to tell a French philosopher what I was working on when I was working on professionalism, and I just got a stare. What are you talking about? Is there such a thing? So it it feels a little bit provincial on my part to lead with that. And corporate is probably a more attractive term if you're really trying to cross linguistic and national borders with the the discussion the only time i can remember talking about corporations directly and it probably was with some of the same ambivalence that you're talking about was in thinking about the 19th century and the invention of the limited liability corporation so ltd right the british version of inc and that seemed to me a very profoundly ambivalent moment, morally speaking and politically speaking. Obviously, it was great for capitalism because it meant that people could invest in things much more easily and and without the fear of having their, their homes taken away if the investment went south. And there's a lot of scary stuff that was made possible in the same way. The, the debates at the time, suggested that this was just immoral, that if you take people's money in an investment, then you should be personally responsible for it. And if necessary, you should be put in jail for debt. Because I was working on Dickens, I was thinking, oh, no, 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 I don't like that. Mm -hmm. Dickens' whole family was put in jail for the father's debt. So how do I feel about the sort of new delegation of responsibility and irresponsibility? Some part of me, I guess, and I don't know whether it sounds like you would have more to say about this than I would. Some part of me thinks that there was something positive about the loosening of responsibility, uh, one side of which was LTD, the Limited Liability Corporation. But the, uh, the other side of it was welfare state thinking, in which let's not say that people who are unemployed are are really immoral and we should punish them for it because it's not their responsibility that they can't find a job. The system is keeping them from getting a job. Pulling back from the assignment of what seems now excessive personal responsibility is a good thing. Historically, those two things seem to be connected to each other. The rise of the modern corporation, scary, and the loosening of liability of responsibility that goes with thinking it's not all you, it's not all self-reliance, people who are poor are not necessarily immoral. So like with most aspects of history, it's dialectically complicated and it's very hard to have a simple thumbs up or thumbs down on it. Yeah. It sounds to me like you know more about this than I do. I'm pretty sure you do and maybe you will take this as an opportunity to tell your listeners a bit of what they, they ought to know.
0: The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt In the second episode, I introduced the essay Criticism Being" by John Crow Ransom, which in 1937 diagnosed a need for professional training in literary criticism and a failure of academic literary studies to produce anything but trivia. As alluded to last episode, Ransom was one of the most influential new critics and Criticism, Inc. is one of that school's foundational documents. But given the new critics' well-earned reputation for methodological imperialism, Ransom's essay betrays a surprising ambivalence about what methods criticism should be professionalized around. Ransom even admits to having flirted with what he calls new humanism, and especially with the Aristotelian method, as championed by the Chicago critics, so-called because they were clustered at the University of Chicago. In fact, the central premise of Criticism, Inc., that the professionalism of criticism be achieved by reorganizing English departments around that mission, Bransom attributes to a Chicago critic, Ronald Crane. Here's a key passage, read to us by an AI-generated stock narrator named Nicholas.
2: Professors of literature are learned, but not critical men. The professional morale of this part of the university staff is evidently low. It is as if, with conscious or unconscious cunning, they had appropriated every avenue of escape from their responsibility which was decent, and official, so that it is easy for one of them without public reproach to spend a lifetime in compiling the data of literature, and yet rarely or never commit himself to a literary judgment. Nevertheless, it is from the professors of literature, in this country the professors of English for the most part, that I should hope eventually for the erection of intelligent standards of criticism. It is their business. Criticism must become more scientific, or precise and systematic, and this means that it must be developed by the collective and sustained effort of learned persons, which means that its proper seat is in the universities. Scientific. But I do not think we need be afraid that criticism, Trying to be a sort of science will inevitably fail and give up in despair or else fail without realizing it and enjoy some hollow and pretentious career. It will never be a very exact science or even a nearly exact one. But neither will psychology, if that term continues to refer to psychic rather than physical phenomena, nor will sociology, as Pareto, quite contrary to his intention, appears to have furnished us with evidence for believing, nor even will economics. It does not matter whether we call them sciences, or just systematic studies, the total effort of each to be effective must be consolidated and kept going. The studies which I have mentioned have immeasurably improved in understanding since they were taken over by the universities, and the same career looks possible for criticism, rather than occasional criticism by amateurs. I should think the whole enterprise might be seriously taken in hand by professionals. Perhaps I use a distasteful figure, but I have the idea that what we need is criticism, incorporated or criticism limited. The principal resistance to such an idea will come from the present incumbents of the professorial chairs, but its adoption must come from them too. The idea, of course, is not a private one of my own. If it should be adopted before long, the credit would probably belong to Professor Ronald S. Crane of the University of Chicago more than to any other man. He is the first of the great professors to have advocated it as a major policy for departments of English. It is possible that he will have made some important academic history.
0: John Crowe Ransom treats Ronald Crane as both a convenient collaborator and an inevitable rival. They are aligned in their ambition to reorganize academic literary study around a critical method but they disagree about what that method should be. Last episode, we surveyed some of the methodological and political commitments which would become New Criticism, the hegemonic model of literary study by the 1950s. This week, across two episodes, we're going to trace an alternative and less familiar history, drilling down on the context of Criticism Incorporated, in particular the Project of Chicago Criticism, which Ransom wants to appropriate. As Bruce's discussion of limited liability hints at, at the time when Ransom's essay, with its explicitly corporatist aspirations, appeared, the reputation of the corporation was far better than it is now, after half a century of being utilized merely as a mechanism for state capture and the upward redistribution of wealth. The private corporation was then frequently presented as an alternative to the welfare state, or nanny state as its detractors preferred a healthy collectivist enterprise that facilitated profit sharing and, as importantly, the diffusion of risk, and did so without expanding the government and therefore its capacity for coercion. Criticism Inc. is in no small way a document of the Great Depression and of the New Deal, and the express favor it shows for the metaphors of business and incorporation indicates its repudiation of not just communism, but the Anglo-American versions of social welfare associated with Franklin Delano Roosevelt and John Maynard Keynes. The Chicago critics were, on the other hand, both ideologically and personally, new dealers. And in no small part because of it, in the period Ransom was writing Criticism, Inc., they were embattled on at least four fronts. In addition to their emergent rivalry with new criticism, they were fighting, and winning a method war within their own department, especially successful in driving biographical and old historicist methods from the center to the fringes. They were also the most visible faculty constituency lining up behind the University of Chicago's then president, Robert Hutchins, and his controversial Chicago Plan, a multi-stage revision of the undergraduate curriculum and restructuring of the academy. The Chicago Plan set off a virulent interdisciplinary and intra-institutional conflict, colloquially known as the Chicago Fight, involving the full faculty, administration, student body, board of trustees, alumni, and city power brokers. Finally, Chicago critics were being drawn against their will into the culture wars associated with rising anti-communism and business opposition to the expanding welfare state under Roosevelt. There was a lot going on in Hyde Park in the 1930s, much of it anecdotal, if not causal, of concurrent national and global megatrends. And it is my contention that though there has been some excellent historicist work done on specific figures and events from this period, a unified account of how these registers spilled over into one another has not yet been produced. Whether or not such an account can be adequately achieved in the genre of the stereographic podcast episode, I'll leave you to decide. Whatever else this two-part consideration of Criticism, Inc. and The Chicago Fight might accomplish, it certainly surveys a previous historical moment during which literary studies faced a polycrisis that included both internal debates about research methods, canons, pedagogy, professionalization, and mediums of scholarly circulation and simultaneous external incursions upon the function of criticism by economic crisis, partisan politicization of education, mass media proclamations of national decline, violent white lash, and rapid technological change. Three scholars have been particularly influential on this episode, all of whom you will hear within it. John Guillory, who has turned to Ransom's Criticism, Inc. repeatedly in his work, including both cultural capital and professing criticism, Eddie Nica, a historian of economic thought who has done extensive research on the University of Chicago, and Anna Dorothea Schneider, author of Humanities at the Crossroads, the Chicago Neo-Aristotelian Critics, and the University of Chicago. Anna's book, a translation of her 1991 German language dissertation, published by the German academic press Nomos in 2019, opened up this topic for me. As she promises in her foreword, though there were almost no changes to the archive during the three decades between her dissertation and book, the material nonetheless had taken on a new urgency, as humanities disciplines were increasingly fighting for their survival within U.S. and U.K. universities. Anna no longer works in academia, and given complications of scheduling, internet access, time difference, and language, she asked if she could record her responses to questions I sent her via email. I obliged, of course. I think it is absolutely imperative that her voice be part of this episode, and that her book be read more widely. But our method of asynchronous conversation obviously limited opportunities for the spontaneous back-and-forth you're accustomed to on The American Vandal. I started by asking her to simply summarize the Chicago plan, the resistance it faced, and its implication for the Chicago critics.
3: First of all, thank you for the invitation to the American Vandal podcast. Now, what I can tell you about the Chicago plan and the pivotal roles of Robert Maynard Hutchins and Richard McKeon is this. Actually, there were two Chicago plans. The Chicago plan of 1931 and the reform of the college in 1942. Both followed the same tendency, that is, to promote general education and the liberal arts as the underlying basis of all university studies and of intelligent thinking in general. This, it was felt, was necessary to prevent a premature specialization of students. The aim was to give epistemological priority to philosophy, and this, of course, was considered a challenge by the natural and social science departments. From these departments mostly opposition arose, And the result was what has been called the Chicago fight. Now, there can be no doubt that the formation of the so-called Chicago School of Criticism was triggered and inspired by the profound changes envisioned by President Robert Maynard Hutchins. He was inaugurated in November 1929. Hutchins was barely 30 at that time, full of plans and energy. He looked like a film star, quite glamorous in a way, and seems to have been a charismatic personality. As a law professor, he was a proficient rhetorician and able to persuade people and raise funds. Basically, the Chicago Plan was the attempt to implement general education and the liberal arts into a university educational program. And that comprised first, a reorganization of the departments into divisions, second, new examination regulations, and third, curriculum changes. The departments were reorganized for administrative purposes. There was no opposition to this. The university had 39 departments at the time, and they now are grouped into four graduate divisions, namely physical, biological, and social sciences, plus the humanities division. The college designed survey courses for each of the four divisions, which were required of all undergraduates. Compulsory attendance of classes and course credits were replaced by seven comprehensive examinations. That meant that students were now free to pursue their studies independently and to attend only classes and lectures they liked, as long as they managed to pass the final seven exams, one in each of the four divisions plus those in the two divisions chosen as electives plus an English qualifying examination. The functions of teaching and scoring were now separated. Scoring was depersonalized insofar as the name of the student did not appear on his examination paper. The curriculum was shifted towards general education and the great books in order to counteract what was deemed too narrow and too early specialization. Hutchins had even more ambitious plans for restructuring the curriculum along these lines But these plans never went into practice because the faculty was opposed to them. Hutchins' reform plans somehow seemed to threaten the familiar routine of many faculty members and to threaten their status as experts and specialists. Now for Richard McKeon, one of the two leaders of the Chicago School of Criticism and in a way its mastermind, McKeon had transferred to Chicago from Columbia University, together with his then-friend Mortimer Adler, who vehemently advocated the philosophy of Aristotle. In 1935, McKean became dean of the humanities division. McKean also was a proponent of the Great Books Movement, a movement that had originated at Columbia University with John Erskine. And McKean supported most of Hutchins' proposals. McKean and Mortimer Adler had led Great Books discussion groups in New York in the late 1920s. So when McKeon and Adler came to Chicago, they brought with them the idea to impart general education by reading and discussing the great books of all times and all disciplines from philosophy through mathematics to belles lettres. Also in 1935, Ronald Crane, the founder leader of the Chicago Critics, became head of the Department of English. He had been a renowned 18th century scholar up to this time But he also had always been interested not only in literary history, but in the history of ideas as well. Crane and the group of his colleagues and students that was to become known as the Chicago Critics thought it necessary to teach the humanities as liberal arts and thus to provide an education which dealt with ethical as well as aesthetic questions and which supplied standards of humanistic value. I have tried to trace the interrelations between the Chicago critics' educational, political and philosophical positions and their literary, critical and metacritical postulates in my book Humanities at the Crossroads. In this book, I also deal with the Chicago critics' defense of the humanities in the ongoing debate between scientists and scholars. Everything in this debate revolved and still revolves around the fundamental opposition between the sciences and the humanities. There had been the conception that the realm of knowledge constitutes a kind of coherent cosmos. That is how the university got its name. The Latin word universitas means totality or universe. University denoted first of all the whole body or community of teachers and students, the universitas magistrorum et scolarium, but it denoted also the totality of the disciplines. However, from the 18th century on, The field of theoretical knowledge began to be subdivided into two rather contrary camps which were not complementary on the one hand the mathematical natural sciences and on the other hand the philosophical humanities the term humanities only comes up in the 19th century by the end of the 19th century the two camps sciences and humanities looked upon each other with growing estrangement and even enmity which is not really surprising since both rest upon totally different philosophical grounds. The university followed these developments by its division into departments. Not only differed the subject matters of the two realms of knowledge, but also their methods or ways of proceeding and, above all, their mindsets. One branch of learning cultivated self-reflection and humanism and an attitude of contemplation. The other was characterized by action, by activities that aimed at an expansion of man's dominion, at technological progress and economic success. In the long run, the struggle between self-control and the control of nature, or between vita contemplativa and vita activa, this struggle finally turned out in favor of the sciences, because they seemed to confirm the faith in a cumulative progress of mankind. The diversification of knowledge into special fields or disciplines seems to have been inevitable because of the growing amount of data that had accumulated. Or was it the other way round? Did perhaps more data accumulate because there were now specialized disciplines that gathered them or even produced them? Anyway, between the two cultures, the artistic-humanistic and the mathematical-technical-scientific studies, The gap was widening and the humanities were threatened by a loss of social prestige, a loss of financial support and hence a loss of self-confidence of those who practiced it. Knowledge at the beginning of the 20th century definitely meant positive knowledge, knowledge that could be proved, that could be tested and verified. Such proofs were difficult to carry out in the humanistic fields. How could the value of a poem possibly be proved? Nevertheless, humanistic scholars tried to emulate the model of the sciences. They didn't want to be left behind by progress. So the social pressure on the humanities towards the end of the 19th century led to the acceptance of the positivist creed also for literary studies. As a result, historism and biographism ruled. Ronald Salmon Crane reacted to these developments in the humanities by beginning his career with empirical, philological and historical research mainly on the history of ideas. Then in the 1930s, he switched his research focus to the techniques of literary production. This allowed him to combine empirical evidence, that is philological research according to the ideal of positive science, with aesthetic evaluation. So this short excursion into the history of science should have made clear The concepts of science, learning, and knowledge are subject to historical change. The opposition between science and humanities is not a given thing. It is something that developed from social, ideological, and material wants and needs. And if human domination of nature is your end, some methods are more suitable and successful than others. In the field of educational policy and theory, heated discussions were going on during the 1920s. The success of the natural sciences in both their theoretical results and their industrial applications, plus the introduction of the elective system at colleges and universities since the 1870s, had led to an increasingly practically oriented curriculum. And thus, vocationalism threatened to oust or marginalize the humanistic learning of the traditional classical curriculum. In the early 1930s, and even before, there had been an ongoing debate in educational and pedagogical circles over the priorities in higher education. Scientism or liberal arts, that was the question. Crane started informal group meetings with colleagues and students at his home to discuss what the humanities are and what the liberal arts are. He and his friends discussed grammar in one group and in another group they discussed criticism. When McKeon came to Chicago, he joined the group that discussed grammar. McKeon's influence soon gained dominance. His deftness to present and compare all kinds of different theories by way of a historical semantic approach seems to have fascinated Crane and Olson and many others. Aristotle's poetics and the Aristotelian method, however, a method relying heavily on induction and empiric evidence, inspired Crane to develop a new research program and a new pedagogical style for English philology. The new research task of literature departments was to be criticism – or the explication and interpretation of literary works based on the findings of traditional philological and historical scholarship. In the classroom, Crane practiced what he called the French system. Elder Olsen described it thus, quote, In the opening session, Crane would assign each student the writing of a paper that was to be read before the class on a given day and to take not less than a half hour in the reading. Another student was designated as critic of the paper. Each paper had to be typed with two carbons, one of which was to be delivered to Crane, the other to the critic one week in advance of the reading. After the author and critic had spoken and had been given a chance at counter-argument, the class would discuss both. Finally, Crane would criticize the entire proceeding and, as one student put it, Clean up on all of us. Crane called this the French system, unquote. So the institutional reconfiguration of the University of Chicago after 1929 and the arrival of new colleagues on the campus with interesting new ideas apparently inspired Crane to change the course of his teaching and research, to espouse academic criticism, to use Aristotle's philosophic framework as a tool and to relegate literary history to the background of literary studies. And then McKeon turned up, and Crane became also interested in more philosophical, theoretical and meta-theoretical issues. In conclusion, I would say, the Chicago critics seem to have been influenced by President Hutchins insofar as their existence as a group was motivated by the debates and controversies that started with Hutchins' inauguration at the University of Chicago. His influence was limited though, as was that of Mortimer Adler, to pointing in the direction of Aristotle to general education and to the liberal arts as fundamental for humanistic education. The emphasis on theory and meta-theory, however, can be ascribed to McKeon's influence.
0: As Anna explains, here and in her book, the Chicago fight broke across reductively snowian lines and the fuzzy but firmly held distinctions made between scientism and humanism were contested by the New Critics simultaneously.
3: In American Literary Criticism, too, there were repercussions of the conflict between humanities and sciences. The New Critics, one of the most prominent schools of American Literary Criticism in the 20th century, presupposed the existence of two different modes of cognition, a scientific and a poetic mode. Thus, the New Critics postulated for poetic language itself a distinctive cognitive quality and spiritual sensibility.
0: The Chicago critics found themselves defending their specific version of scientistic criticism against the New Critics, while distinguishing it from the historicist scientism which had previously dominated their department at University of Chicago, and frequently derogating scientism entirely as the sole or superior realm of knowledge, in the prolonged campus feud which quite literally pitted so-called Aristotelians against social scientists. There was even a baseball game. The variety of the conflicts plaguing the Chicago critics simultaneously, I think results in some statements which can sometimes seem contradictory or certainly complicated, which is not necessarily a bad thing for a critical method. And I asked John Guillory about this, and he suggests a fascinating genealogy descending from the type of methods that developed at Chicago under the pressures of polycrisis. One of the conventions that you are throwing yourself up against throughout the book is the kind of two cultures of the humanities and the sciences. But in reading, I, you also uh, propelled me to go back and read Criticism Incorporated, the John Crow Ransom. Criticism essay Inc., yes. <laughs> from way back, and which you show this inclination that Ransom has to, towards professionalization is mm-hmm. something that starts to shape the discipline and how it understands itself, or at least comes at a moment when the discipline is starting to right, right. worry in those ways. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really struck me when I went back to the essay is that he uses as the example the University of Chicago and a sort of emergence Chicago school of criticism that was both, I would say, collaborating with but also competing with new criticism and eventually it would seem that new criticism sort of triumphs and, and I don't think we talk about the Chicago school nearly as much but Mm -hmm. thinking about that particular institutional moment. It seems as though that Chicago brand of criticism was very directly trying to react maybe to an emergent chicago school of sociology but also maybe even more so just chicago Mm -hmm. school of economics right Mm -hmm. and i was wondering to how you felt about rethinking the two cultures problem where instead of the sciences being the thing which we are constantly having to press ourselves up against and as you said define our work Mm -hmm. in relationship to Mm It has economics and its uh, various subfields, law, political science, and also influence throughout the social sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, finance and business is that in some ways more what we have to f- fight and resist and define mm-hmm. ourselves against than the hard sciences.
4: Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to find ourselves against. I think there can be distinction without antithesis distinction without antagonism that's the kind of distinction i think we want to make with the social sciences obviously i'm friendly to the social sciences reading the sociology of the progressive era and the kind of still classical sociology of someone like bourdieu obviously i have a use for sociology Mm -hmm. it's impossible to enter into the world of sociology without, to a certain extent, entering into the world of economics as well. Although, of course, in the U.S., the tenor of economics in the U.S. is, as people would, would say now, neoliberal, for the most part, with, with some exceptions, so the exceptions are important to me, figures like Alvin Guldner or the transplanted sociologist from Alain Touraine, uh, these are the figures who were important to me. Who descended really from that whole several generations of sociologists and economists from the progressive era? So, before neoliberalism said it, and then it became all about dismantling social welfare and blah, blah, blah. So, I don't see antagonism there. What I do see is difference. There's that. But the question you raise is really interesting because it's an historical question. What you are pointing to is that moment in the late 1920s and early 1930s, when literary critics like John Crowe Ransom were trying to figure out how to professionalize criticism, because this was a discourse. I don't know whether you've read the essay recently, I'm actually writing on it, a little bit on it now, because because I'm writing an essay on the history of close reading. And John Carr Ransom's Criticism, Inc., is one of a handful of documents that I think are most important for telling that story. Yeah. And the reason for that close that post-reading is the way for criticism to make itself a rigorous technique. And on what model can this rigor, can this technicity be established? In Ransom's essay, there are two models. One of them is science and the other one is business, hence the ink. (laughs) Um, But but neither one is functioning as an object of imitation for Ransom. He doesn't really wanna make criticism into a science and he sort of toys with that identification, but then he walks away from it. He says, oh, it's not really a science. What I'm really talking about is a systematic study And then with the same with business, and I think what he's interested in this invocation of of business, criticism, Inc., and close textual analysis as the business of criticism, Mm -hmm. not literary history, but close textual analysis. He sees this as what he calls the business of criticism. But what kind of a business is, that's a really odd, (laughs) odd business to be in. What exactly are you selling? What kind of profit are you? making from that, it's not really a business. So he's looking for analogies that would orchestrate the transition of literary criticism from its amateur states to a status that would put it in a position of parity with other kinds of knowledge discourse. Mm-hmm. So the literary histor- historians, they have knowledge. But what Ransom and the other new critics were saying is that knowledge by itself is just pretty trivial. It doesn't really tell you very much uh, about works of literature because you're not apprehending those works of literature as aesthetic artifacts, as verbal artifacts. You're just reading them as documents. That's part of what's happening in that essay then he has this section in the essay where he starts to talk about the Chicago school. And the question you raise is not one that I think I can answer without making a little side trip to look at exactly what it is that was interesting Ransom about the Chicago mm-hmm. critics. What we know, of course, is that Crane and McKeon and the Chicago critics were very disapproving of the new criticism. They thought this was a wrong path to take, and they wanted to establish the discipline as a a, a rigorous discipline that was different from literary history, but they wanted to establish it on a different basis than the new critics. Not the basis of close textual reading, but a basis that was grounded in an Aristotelian concept of genre. So essentially they saw literary criticism, this this other non-literary historical version of literary criticism, they saw that as essentially genre criticism. And if you go back to the Poetics, the Poetics is 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 an enormously generative document. Aristotle figured out so many things in the poetics and what he hinted at was a whole system of of genres based in drama but implying also epic lyric comedy the a whole system of genres that would essentially give you a way of talking about this particular kind of artifact and i think off and on for, a, for another nearly 2,000 years, there was a way of talking rigorously about literary artifacts. But it's not the way that Ransom wants to do it. He recognizes that this is an alternative to new criticism. And he doesn't want that alternative, but he recognizes it as an alternative. So what happened was that the new critics won. They won that debate. And the Chicago school died out. Now, what didn't die out, and this is what's so fascinating to me about the history of the discipline and and why I've wasted so much of my life studying it, is that that genre criticism did not die out. It had a very important life going forward. It had a very important uh, line of development going forward, only not in the form Aristotelian criticism. What you get as the major statement in the 1950s is North of Frye. That is essentially a genre criticism. It's not a criticism that's based primarily on, on close textual anal- analysis of individual poems or pieces of writing. I have just a footnote on this in my essay on close reading. I describe this as. A mode of criticism that's deductive. It sees individual pieces of texts as exemplary of, of an abstract principle that's attached to the concept of genre. So new criticism was deductive, sorry, was inductive. It proceeded from the words, the phrases, the lines, on up to the level of abstraction, but abstraction that was really sutured to the individual work. Genre criticism was a way of thinking about aggregates of works, was a way of thinking about dozens and hundreds of works and ways you could talk about those works. And that has, in fact, been, I think, really generative, but alongside uh, alongside the tradition that's defined by new criticism mm-hmm. and, and close reading. So we go to the next, I think, really major figure after. North of Fry, and that's Fred Jameson. A lot of Jameson comes right out of Frye. Jameson is interested in romance, in in epic, in novel, in these aggregate forms, and reading allegorically through these aggregate forms to the system of capitalism, whatever you think about that particular way of constructing interpretive analysis, its basis is not really. Starting with a poem, it's not starting with a text. It's starting with a generic concept and working deductively from that generic concept. I think more recently, Mark McGurl has evolved into a, a major generic critic. His recent book, which I think is superb, Everything and Less, on the novel in the age of Amazon. He's done an amazing thing with these two old generic concepts of epic and romance. He's shown how these generic forms have evolved into the major modes of literary expression in our time. If we think about literary expression as defined by numbers, the art novel becomes a little side eddy in the evolution of these major generic forms. The high art novel, it reflects those major generic forms, but those major generic forms will go on across media. We're talking about science fiction. He counterposes science fiction on one side as epic fantasy and romance on the other side as minimalist domestic narrative. So he's done quite an amazing thing with with essentially a mode of generic criticism. So we have this weirdly distorted view of the dominant tendencies in literary study. I think going back to the new criticism, because what's most conspicuous to us is new criticism, close reading, and that tradition. And we're not seeing that this other tradition, which might have been dominated by the the terms in the, in the text of the Chicago school, but was not nonetheless continue as generic criticism through through the 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond. If you go back and read the Chicago School writings, they're very dry. They miss something that the critics were really good at. making individual literary works exciting. They couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. And I think that doomed them. And and Mm -hmm. so you had to wait for people like Northrop Frye and and Fred Jameson to make uh, genre criticism really lively and and vital again. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting that you pick up on that in the essay because people don't read that essay much anymore. They know the existence of it, that it was important. It's that moment when he contends with the Chicago School, I think, shows you why the Chicago School failed and Mm -hmm. new criticism succeeded.
0: In your epilogue, you note that the Chicago critics were anthologized more often in the late 20th century than they had been during the mid 20th century. And strangely, their influence seemed to be gaining, even though decades earlier, it had been roundly defeated by new criticism. Do you think the influence of the Chicago school has continued to gain traction in the intervening years?
3: On the contrary. Elder Olson, for instance, sometimes even denied that there ever was a school, at least as he put it, in the sense of a number of people holding uniform doctrines or even identical views about Aristotle.
0: But while Anna Dorothea Schneider is quick to deny that anything quite like the Chicago School of Criticism still exists, certainly anything that might go by that name, Elsewhere in her answers, she seems to agree with John that though Chicago criticism as such was driven underground by new criticism's dominance, its methods never entirely disappeared, and indeed may have much to offer us at our present moment of polycrisis.
3: Yes, it is true. Of the two rivaling formalist schools in criticism, new criticism and Chicago Neo Aristotelian criticism, new criticism carried the day. At least, during the 1940s and 1950s, and its adherents dominated modern language departments even longer. But in the long run, the Chicagoans have sent out second and third generations of academics trained in that vein, and they spread the gospel not of formalism only, but also of cross-fertilizing interdisciplinary approaches. Thus, the Chicago tradition has been kept alive, until students and teachers became wary of interpreting for the nth time a poem by Pound or Elliot in the style of the new critics. The Chicagoans, by contrast, did not have that narrow preference for poetry. They interpreted short stories, novels, and plays. They analyzed plots and genres, in short, storytelling. And when that became of interest again, not only in literature, but also in public relations, politics and across all kinds of media, their approach kept some answers available. The Chicago critics even may have contributed to the narrative turn in the humanities from 1995 on. Greta Olson, in her Introduction to Current Trends in Narratology of 2011, mentions the American rhetorical-oriented ethical approaches to narrative which arose out of the Chicago school's work. David Richter, himself a third-generation Chicago critic, put it that way in 2018. Chicago formalism had a second and subsequent generations who revised and extended its reach into what is now called rhetorical narrative theory, one of the two most important branches of contemporary narratology. Whether the old Chicago-style criticism is of interest to students of literature and literary theory today I cannot say, but I think it is still worthwhile to learn from this rather systematic approach and I can only recommend, as an example, Crane's interpretation of Hemingway's short story The Killers, to be found in Volume 2 of The Idea of the Humanities. It is very cogently and lucidly argued and will still be useful to teachers and students, I think. presents a kind of model that can be applied to other stories as well. The competition between the new critics and the Chicago critics was a question of quantity versus quality, I would say. Quantity has a certain power, of course, but in the long run, it may well be that quality persists. Anyway, the Chicago critics' work seems to be a voice of moderation, so much needed in our times of fashionable nonsense and moral self-righteousness. A time when emotionalization is substituting for intellectual rigor, and when it may well happen that pluralistic humanism that seeks to aim at conciliation will be likely discarded.
0: We'll be coming back to the question of Chicago Criticism's contemporary Valence next episode. But first, I want to make a detour, a step outside the English department. Anna's book views the Chicago fight from the vantage of the Chicago critics, and she was reluctant to speculate too much about how it may have looked from elsewhere in the university, other than to cite the numerous public statements made by the social scientists. Most prominently, Harry Gideons, the economist they chose as their spokesperson, and who vigorously debated the Aristotelians, not only on campus, but in the municipal and national press. Gideons was not unfamiliar to me. I recently wrote the chapter on the Chicago School of Economics for the forthcoming edition of the Johns Hopkins Guide to Critical and Cultural Theory. And during my research, Gideons' name had popped up. usually as a relatively minor figure from the generation of teachers whose work the prominent chicago economists of the late 20th century would reject but i also couldn't help but note that several of those prominent chicago economists milton friedman george stigler paul samuelson aaron director alan wallace they'd all been on campus as students during the implementation of the chicago plan and in some cases for the most heated portions of the chicago fight Samuelson would later remember that the Chicago Boys took squatter rights possession of a storeroom in the basement of the Social Science Research Building and began working out their conservative counterattack against mainstream economics, at that time the neoclassical Keynesian synthesis, motivated in large part by their opposition to Roosevelt and the New Deal. It seems quite likely they were not big fans of Robert Hutchins or the Chicago School Critics. I remember when I was solicited to write the Chicago School chapter, I had a momentary fear when reviewing an older edition of the guide, I noticed that only one Chicago School was mentioned, the Chicago School of Criticism. I wrote the editor to confirm, you want me to write about the Chicago School of Economics, right? Because I don't know a damn thing about Chicago Criticism. But reading Anna's book, I couldn't help but think, these schools are actually related, aren't they? When I told Eddie Nikah about the book, he tracked down a copy so we could work through this question a bit together. Edward Nikai is a professor of economics at Roanoke College, and the co-author with Phil Murawski of The Knowledge We Have Lost in Information, as well as author, co-author, or editor of numerous essays on the Chicago School of Economics. While there are numerous Chicago critics featured in Anna's book, the department's mission during the 1930s was disproportionately determined by three men, as she shows the chair of the department, Ronald Crane, the dean of the humanities, Richard McKeon, and the president of the university, Robert Maynard Hutchins. Hutchins, Eddie said. We really need to talk about him.
5: This is Howard Langer in New York. I'm speaking to you from the top floor of a 42nd Street skyscraper, headquarters of the Fund for the Republic. Directly across the table sits Dr. Robert M. Hutchins, President of the Fund. He is tall, graying at the temples, wears a conservative business suit. Dr. Hutchins' background is one of staunch Yankee independence. He is descended from a long line of doctors, ministers, and sea captains. Robert Maynard Hutchins was born in Brooklyn, New York, January 17, 1899. During World War I, he served in the U.S. Ambulance Corps overseas. He studied law at Yale, became a professor there, and rose to become dean of the law school at the age of 29. At 30, he was president of the University of Chicago. He revised the university curriculum along European lines. Bright high school students were allowed to enter and graduate college early. Some got out at 18. Hutchins instituted the Great Books Programme which encouraged adults to read and discuss great classics. He abolished university football. He placed the institution's facilities at the disposal of the Manhattan Project to develop the first atomic bomb. Atomic energy was born at Chicago's Stagg Field, where the first controlled chain reaction took place in 1942. In 1947, Hutchins headed a 13-man commission to report on the American press. We'll hear more about that later. In 1951, Dr. Hutchins resigned as Chancellor of the University of Chicago to become Associate Director of the Ford Foundation. Three years later, he became President of the Fund for the Republic.
0: For this guy, Hutchins, Eddie explained, Harry Gideon's and the new critics were pretty far down the list of powerful enemies he had made
6: this comes up a lot. Whenever you have discussions about Robert Hutchins and what he did at the University of Chicago, it concerns the stance that he took on academic freedom. And really, he gained a measure of fame for taking a public stamp in, in favor of this during a crisis at the University of Chicago during the 1930s. And And what's happening in the 30s? This was a time when there were charges of radicalism that were regularly lodged against University of Chicago Faculty, both by prominent local business persons and by national politicians. Uh, and then you had the Chicago Herald Examiner. Uh, now, this is the newspaper, one of the newspapers owned by William Randolph Hearst, trumpeting these charges. Okay, so you have all this going on, and trustees at the university are, are getting worried. They're getting worried because some of them personally shared concerns about faculty activities, you know, they didn't like this idea of radicalism, and others we're worried about alienating business persons who may otherwise contribute to the university. Remember, we're talking about the 1930s here. All of this is happening during the 30s. Gosh, can you possibly imagine what it must have been like, right? I know it's hard, but that was the situation that Chicago faced in the 1930s. No presentist analogies whatsoever, right? (laughs) Imagine in your mind's eye if you can. Now, this is the backdrop when this is happening one chicago student was at the dinner table and expressing ideas concerning communism and the dissolution of the family and claimed that this was addressed and maybe even emphasized in some of her courses at the university and her uncle was outraged and he ended up publicly charging the university with indoctrinating her in communism Okay. Now, you might think, who cares? It's some guy that's just upset. But this guy, this uncle happened to be Charles Walgreen of the national drugstore chain, which was headquartered in Chicago, and he demanded a public inquiry. And the Illinois State Senate obliged. (laughs) They were pleased to oblige, actually. There are, there are a few histories that have talked about this episode, and they tend to treat it as a kind of a farce, and the, the inquiry ended with a vindication of the university of its most serious charges. There were repercussions for some of the, pe- uh, the accused, so one faculty member, uh, Robert Morse Lovett, who was an English professor, was singled out for his unpatriotic course of conduct by the committee, and he ended up quietly retiring, and the university didn't really come to his Defense.
0: Let's just dog ear that. Some poor English professor got railroaded, but otherwise nobody got hurt. We're going to come back to it.
6: But later, Walgreen himself ended up donating $550,000 as a sort of mea culpa a kind of acknowledgement of the regrettable circumstances that he may have had a part in bringing about. But it was also to foster a greater appreciation of American life and values among students at the University of Chicago. So this established a professorship lecture series, and it sponsored undergraduate research. You think that's a happy-ish ending. Mm -hmm. Not happy for everyone, but happy-ish. But this is really only the first act, (laughs) okay? The second act happens later after Walgreen's death in 1939. And Hutchins' departure from the presidency of the University of Chicago in 1954. Chicago has a new president, Lawrence Kempton, and and he changes a lot of things. And one of the things that he changes is he makes it a priority to respect the will of donors. And, And now you have Charles Walgreen II, who took special interest in the operation of the foundation. He nixed appointments, proposed appointments, and then he complained about the failure to make an appointment acceptable to him. He complained about presentations that were sponsored by the Foundation. One example is he attended a lecture by Ralph Bunch, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950. He complained about it because he said that this represented a departure from the mission of the Foundation.
0: For those who may not know, Ralph Bunch received the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in mediating an early treaty between Israel and Palestine. But probably more important for Eddie's story, Ralph Bunch was black. He was the first black person to receive a Nobel Prize.
6: And so what ends up happening is Kempton halts the program's activities, the Walgreen Foundation's activities. And this is in 1959. So look, once again, you have this question of outsider influence coming to the surface. The dean of social sciences complained that it really wasn't proper for the university to take funds for a professorship with strings attached. And and then Chicago should just give back the money. But there was a newly named Dean at the Graduate School of Business who who sensed an opportunity here. And and this was Alan Wallace. Alan Wallace had previously studied at Chicago. He was a former classmate of, many of your listeners may have heard of Milton Friedman. He was a classmate of his and George Stigler, Um, and much later, so this is after the events we're talking about here, he would become Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs in the Reagan administration. This is a real dude that we're talking about here, ends up becoming very important. Well, he, in the context of Walgreen threatening to take back the funds, said that he could find nothing wrong with giving Walgreen the second veto power over. An appointment, and moreover, he guaranteed that he would be able to find someone suitable within a year. One question you might have is how could he be so confident given the problems that they'd had in the past? And here it's important to realize that Charles Walgreen II had an advisor. This advisor was a person by the name of Leonard Reed, and both Leonard Reed and Alan Wallace were members of something called the Mont Pelerin Society. Now there's this big literature on the Montpelerin Society that notes its importance as the central organization devoted to the incubation of neoliberalism. So we may wanna reserve some time to talk about that, but it's a a very important organization for the development of post-war political and intellectual thought. And they're both members of it, and it's not a huge organization either, okay? So Alan Walls offered the Walgreen Chair, which had uh, sat unoccupied, to George Stigler, who was also a member of the Mont Pelerin Society. So this action is widely understood to have completed the formation of of what we would now call the Chicago School of Economics. And what distinguishes this Chicago School of Economics is its entrenchment and its empowerment of those devoted to this project of articulating a neoliberalism. Okay. And, and so that sort of begins the third act, right? See, this Walgreen mm-hmm. incident was really important yeah. uh, for the development of Chicago and the Chicago School of Economics, because Stigler comes in and he, he transforms the mission. Before it was this institution devoted to the study of American values. It's focused on undergraduate students, that sort of thing. And now it's going to be about studying the causes and consequences of the governmental control of economic life. So you had this thing that was once devoted to fostering American values in undergraduates. Now it's going to be taken and placed in a graduate program in business because that was what Stigler was actually hired into was the Graduate School of Business. Wallace was the dean there. And then funds placed at the direction of a single professor, Stigler, who would then use those funds in order to fund academic research. Okay, so major transformation here. It's very important for the development of the doctrines that form the Chicago School of Economics.
0: What Kimpton, Wallace, and Stigler had done was, among other things, a major step towards dismantling Robert Hutchins's Chicago plan. The prioritization of professional programs, of graduate programs, of research professorships, and perhaps most of all, the capitulation to donors. These were all things Hutchins resisted, during his two-decade tenure at University of Chicago.
7: I would say that the general administrations would like to be on the side of the angels. They would like to be. The pressures that are exerted on the administrative officers are enormous, and they are are just as strong in private institutions as they are in public ones. They appear simply in different ways. What Mr. Charles R. Walgreen, uh, the druggist of Chicago, had to say about the University of Chicago, which is just as important to the trustees of the University of Chicago as what a legislature has to say about San Francisco State College. I think the administration, the faculty, and the trustees ought, ought to be drastically reconsidered. I do not believe in permanent administrations. I do not believe in administrations that are not elected by the faculty. I do not believe in trustees that own the university or that have the power to say what's will go one in it. I believe that the proper function of trustees is as a critical body to offer advice as best friends and severest critics to the faculty, which the faculty may then ignore if it wishes to do so. But in any sound educational program, it is the faculty that must constitute the real corporate entity with which we are dealing, no matter what the role of the administration or the trustees may nominally be.
0: This may be a little bit of begging the question, but you mentioned earlier the place that the businessman holds in the sort of imagination of economics from the Chicago School. Like the, this is the sort of ideal economic rationalizer right that is on the one hand clearly a kind of theoretical device right that it's founded on this idea that capital is taking the risks they're the ones that are most directly engaged in the marketplace and therefore most immediately realize the returns or the losses associated with this marketplace of both ideas and actual goods and services or is that sort of celebration of the the businessman's prestige and intelligence is that to some extent associated with the the rising dependence on donors the the Chicago school seems to be at the forefront of partnerships with corporations with military industrial complex with hedge funds and private equity is is that a result of Chicago, or is it a reason for Chicago? <laughs> oh, I don't
6: know. Can it, can't it? can it be both? It be. I mean, there, there are ideas and structures here. One thing that neoliberalism does is it reserves a different place for the business person. Sure, if we turn back the clock, then what is the role of the business person in all of this? Provide funds, and not only for Chicago, for the right. Chicago School of Economics, right? This is, of course, something that a university would would welcome, <laughs> getting funds from mm-hmm. people and, and business people or people, right? So there. So.
0: Just they're before fl- you go on, just. But they didn't always welcome those funds coming with strings, right? I think that's maybe the distinction, right?
6: Yeah, I do think that's a distinction. And I also think that it doesn't quite stop with that, Mm -hmm. because I think that what you have is a kind of invitation of the business person. And they become intellectuals. They become intellectuals in that they are in the Mont Pelerin society, right? So they're in similar organizations. And over time, you get a a welcoming of the voice in the production of knowledge, rather than something that we don't wanna talk about or something that we would deny, now it becomes something that's celebrated, Mm -hmm. right? And that itself, that also has its history right this development but I think that yeah that's the reason why I wouldn't say it's one thing causing the other right. I wouldn't say that this is a case where say Chicago scholars had their beliefs but they needed the money <laughs> and, and so they're willing to tweak things in order to do right. it no what we're talking about here is a collective project <laughs> that's how I would yeah yeah I would put it. But of course, they would have to bear in mind that other approaches and other schools had their own sources of support, right? They were very concerned with the state. The state is a major player post-World War II in financing science. And so if you didn't want to go to the state and get All of your funding from the state you might want to think where other sources of concentrated economic power that i can go to right (laughs) in order to support a major program and so quite naturally you would begin to cultivate those sources of support now having said that of course then it makes sense to ask what does that do what does that formation do to the nature of the ideas that are produced
0: We'll be trying to answer those questions in our second episode on the Chicago Fight, which we'll post later this week. In the meantime, you can learn more about our guests and find a bibliography for both episodes at marktwainstudiescom backslash Chicago Fight, or by subscribing to our newsletter at theamericanvandal.substack.com. I'm gonna leave you with Robert
7: Maynard Hutchins. Great professor of political science at Yale was asked last week what he thought would happen if the Russians could gain secretly gain control over the television stations and networks of the United States. And he said, well, of course, nothing would happen. So the Russians realized that the television stations and networks of the United States are undermining the foundations of this country. And they would encourage it to carry on as it does. Now, when I was a boy, we didn't have to contend with anybody except William Randolph Hearst. And he was rather hit in our lives. He wasn't Present with us every hour of every day. But now, of course, all the studies show that more young people are spending more time with television than they are in the formal processes of education. And the standards that are being developed for our people through television, which are the standards of a consumer society, it is impossible to escape these standards because if you turn from one station to the next to the next, you simply get another version of what you saw in the one you just turned off. When I was a boy, the universities took the sons of the rich and rendered them harmless to society. Now one cannot say that this is a white, or unworthy task. When you think of the fathers and grandfathers of the boys who were classmates of mine at Yale, you have to admit that those pirates of the 19th century needed to have some improvement brought in their ancestral line and that that did actually take place. The ghouls and the Rockefellers who were contemporaries of mine in college have on the whole been better public servants and better citizens than those who established the fortunes on which they had lived. So I say that the university in those days did accomplish a useful, not as overwhelmingly important, task and did it rather well. As for research, we didn't even know how to pronounce the word. I remember very well talking to A.P. Sloan, Jr., chairman of the board of the General Motors Company. Not more, certainly, than 25 years ago. And I was trying to interest him in research at the University of Chicago. And he said, all good ideas come out of the shop. And what's the use of research? And this was the prevalent notion at that time. Of change, of course, and we have to admit that the new era began with the end of the last war. And what ended the old era and started the new one was the observation open to everybody during the last war that the scientists could blow well- up the world. Since that time, government and big business, who in my day left the university to starve to death, clasped it to its bosom and embraced it as almost suffocating. President John Kennedy said over and over again the way of power and prosperity was to build up the universities of the United States. This message, even in California, even under the present administration, has been taken very seriously. So that the academic procession now carries a banner with a strange device. It is a cornucopia on a field of anti-ballistic missiles. <laughs> so the university is not merely a part of the power structure, but it is central to the power structure. It performs as a service station any task that those who have the power and money pay for or the pressure it to do and ask it to perform. And the result is that in my view, there is no university left. I even say there never was a university in this country, and there's a good argument for that position. But I would say that under present conditions, there is no chance to have one. what my friend Clark Kerr calls the multiversity defines the absence of the university. Because the one essential characteristic of a university, without which it cannot be, is that it must be a center of independent thought and criticism.